Welcome to Seeing Beyond Risk, a podcast series from the Canadian Institute of Actuaries. I'm Chris Buoli, Actuary Communications and Public Affairs at the CIA. Thank you for listening to today's episode. We would like to remind you that we have plenty of past episodes, so please subscribe and catch up on some that you may have missed. We can be found on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and your favorite podcast platform. This is the second of two episodes in which we will be featuring the CIA's recently released ERM booklet, a series of essays that cover a wide range of risk management topics. We encourage you to also listen to the previous episode, where we also spoke to some of the authors of these essays to find out what ideas they have shared with us. If you would like to read further, please visit the CIA website to download a copy of the booklet. Managing and mitigating risk is an important function, but it is also important to make sure that risks are adequately disclosed to all interested parties. In the paper entitled A Scorecard for a Comparative Analysis of Risk Disclosures and Research Findings, co-authors Sim Siegel and Luna Shua present a methodology to assess the quality of these disclosures. Sim joins us today to discuss further. Thanks very much for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good to be here. So when you talk about risk disclosures, what exactly are you referring to and, and where can they typically be found? Well, regulators require publicly traded companies to share information, disclose their risks of investing in their stock. So for companies regulated by the SEC, the U.S. Uh, Security and Exchange Commission, this is found in 10K, the form 10K, the annual form, uh, in Section 1A. In Canadian regulated companies, they have that in their annual information form. So your paper introduces a scorecard uh, to evaluate the quality of risk disclosures. So can you tell us how that works and, and what are some of the key factors you look at? Yeah, so a little background on it. There's a lot of room for improvement in most companies' risk disclosures. First, they often don't seem to comply very well with existing regulatory requirements, although it doesn't seem like that's strongly enforced by the SEC from my perspective. Even more importantly, the regulatory requirements don't seem to be robust enough. For a long time, I wanted to design a new standard for risk disclosures against which I could measure companies to score the quality of their risk disclosures in absolute terms, but also to be able to compare, contrast, and even rank them from best to worst. So the scorecard that uh, Luna and I eventually developed has three criteria. First is just the level of focus. Are you focusing on the important risk? That's criteria one. The second criterion is what is the quality from an ERM technical perspective? And third, what is the quality of the risk description from a non-technical, just general perspective? So if we start with the, the first criterion, which is just are we focusing on the important risk? This is the most important of the three criteria because, first of all, you have to be discussing the correct risk to begin with, and these should be the risks with the most potential impact to shareholder value, of course, for public companies we're talking about. Virtually every industry study I've ever seen on the subject, including two that I conducted, uh, one for the Canadian Institute of Actuaries, and all of my client work show that by far the largest source of risk, when you map the risk to the originating source, where it really comes from, for all companies, including from the financial sector, surprisingly, is strategic risk. And I need to define that because not everybody defines this the same way. We're defining risk here, the strategic risk category. Those are risks that maybe you have risks in the way you develop the strategy. So your choice in strategic planning of what products and services are we going to offer through what distribution channels are we going to offer them, what target markets we're going to go after, what's our value proposition, that maybe the choices were suboptimal, or maybe the choices were fine, but you have strategic execution risk. You're just not able to perfectly execute your strategy in certain areas, which is pretty commonly in the top 20-25 risk. Or maybe a competitor attack, or a regulatory change that's going to ruin one of your markets, or you have supply chain issues, or governance risk, or international risk. So these are examples of strategic risk. And this represents two-thirds. The studies consistently show this, that two-thirds of a company's volatility comes from that. 
The second most important source of risk is actually operational risk. These are people-related risks, process-related risk, technology risk, disasters, both man-made and natural. This is about one out of every four risks comes from operational. So it's kind of interesting because the last is financial risk. And although financial risks are important, they represent only about 6% of the risk of an organization, again, even in insurance and banking. And these risks are market risk, credit risk, liquidity risk, commodity price risk, and economic risk. So that's the relative proportions that these actually exist in terms of ERM risk, big volatility items. Unfortunately, many companies' disclosures are not aligned with these findings, meaning, scary, <laughs> that they're potentially misrepresenting the risk to investors and to the public. Not intentionally, because you may infer that ERM programs themselves are not actually focusing their efforts in the correct proportions on these risks either. They may be unaware often of these studies or uh, just don't have the tools in their, in their ERM methodology. And that's what I find in the market. So our scorecard compares a company's level. What is your level of focus of strategic risk versus operational versus financial in those three categories, which cover everything, and compares that to a standard benchmark from these industry studies. So it, it does this using two factors, so two bases, one just based on word count and then actually just mapping that to risk, so doing a risk count as well. So two different ways of comparing how much of your disclosures is dealing with either strategic, operational, or financial. The closer a company's focus is to the standard, the better the score that we give it. Another factor under this criterion of, hey, are you looking at the most important risk? It tracks the total number of risks included. And we use 25 as our ideal benchmark because based on uh, my experience as an ERM expert, as the number of key risks in an ERM program begin to exceed this level, the efforts tend to lose focus. So the key risks have a more detailed treatment than non-key risks in, in, in ERM. So that's what we're looking at. So if they have too many beyond that, then they don't, they don't have focus we take away from the score. So that's the first criterion. The second criterion looks at the quality of risk description from an ERM perspective. So if the first criteria says, hey, are, are we talking about the right, right risk to begin with? The second one says, are we describing, once we know what we're talking about, are we describing the risk robustly? And we use three factors to score this. One, what is the quality of the way that you're describing risks by their originating source? Two, what is the quality with which you're describing the way the risks impact the organization, so the outcome of it? And three is how many, like what percentage of your risks are comprehensively, like really well described from both source and impact. So it can really be really understood by investors. So just as an example, let me expand just on the first one, if I can. It's important to define risks exclusively by their originating source because, first of all, it gives context for scoring the likelihood. And second, it allows for a full assessment of severity. So let me just explain that as, as an example. Many companies, unfortunately, have a muddled definition. They sometimes define risk by source and others by impact or intermediate impact, which causes problems in both assessing likelihood and severity. So let me give you a specific example, reputational risk. We hear this a lot, oh, reputational risk. Every time I hear that, I ask questions because it depends what people mean by that. Reputation risk is not a risk. And I don't mean that it's not important. Reputation is all companies have. So, of course, it's it's a paramount. But 
reputation is not a source of risk. There are many different, you have to trace back more upstream and identify there may be many different sources of risk that could rise to the level. So it's more of a matter of degree where it could then trigger negative media coverage, temporary or lasting, which then can trigger temporary or lasting reputational damage, which then downstream either lowers your revenues, increases your expenses, and or increases your cost of capital. So therefore you care about it because it affects your value. So some examples. Fair or unfair, true or untrue, there could be an article, media story about that you have poor product quality, or maybe you have bad customer service, or there could be an internal fraud event or a scandal with the board, or you could just have poor external relations with the media, which generates something. I, I remember I had uh, someone I was talking to, and they said, look, the governor of our state is out to get us, and every time he gets the microphone, he attacks us. That's a source of risk. These are just four examples that are very, very different types of risk. So for different companies, they may say, well, yeah, you know, story about our product quality, that's not likely. Customer service, not an issue. Mm, scandal, that's one that we think is an issue and maybe poor external relations. How you would score these likelihood severity would be very, very different. So you need to treat them all differently. So just as one example, the first factor that is very important to get source of risk correct. So that's the, the sort of second criterion is a technical ERM way of judging. Did you describe the source correctly? Did you describe how it impacts the company correctly? And how do you put those together to be robust for each risk description? The third criterion is a more general test of quality of risk description. Is it clearly communicated? And we use four factors for these. One, is it organized well? Just as an example, the Securities and Exchange Commission states you have to organize it logically and that each risk factor should be under its own subcaption or sort of heading. And that makes sense. It's organized well. You have a heading of a certain risk and you cover that risk within that heading structure, not scatter it across multiple sections of the disclosures because it confuses investors reasonable. So we calculate how many subcaptions or headings are used to describe each risk on the average. It should be one. You should have one to one. We find that the higher the number, if, if some risks are scattered over three different ones, we, we calculate an average. So the higher the number, the worst score. Second factor, is it readable? We use the standard flush reading ease score. The lower the number, the better, the easier it is to read it. Three, are the words used relevant? So we know when we write something, how many, what percentage of the words we actually measure it. So this, this analysis that we did was a very detailed analysis, analyzing for the companies we did about 40 companies, this is almost half a million words analyzed. So uh, it's, it's, in, it's incredible. So it's really looking at whether the words are actually valuable, contributing to an understanding, or they're just extraneous. So we, we score the percentage of non-zero words, the higher the score, the better. And the last factor we use, is it concise? So we look at how efficient is it and are you just really verbose and you're drowning people in words or is it written concise words respecting the reader and they can really understand it better. So we calculate the number of risks described per 1,000 words. The higher the score, the better. Okay, and just to wrap up, I was hoping you could share one surprising finding that you got from your evaluation of companies using this scorecard. Yeah, it's really interesting because we can use this tool to see how a company scores versus their closest competitors. And what was surprising is that we found some pretty extreme differences, which we didn't expect, between the best and the worst. We expected some variation, but there's some extreme variation between the best and worst in some of the factors. For example, on the relevance score, we found that the best company had nearly all of their words being relevant, 98%, while the worst company had virtually one-third of their disclosures could have been eliminated. One-third of the words could, were filled with zero words, were just not relevant, a distraction. Uh, another example is that regarding the risk count, which is something sort of very tangible, is how many risks, when you filter it all down and you map it to specific risk, 
how many are being discussed? The best company had a nearly ideal 26 risk discussed. The worst had 96, almost 100 risk. That's just a laundry list. That's not really informing investors. So that was kind of shocking. Okay, that's interesting stuff. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Actuaries have an appreciation of the risks involved in pension work, but how familiar are plan sponsors and members? In his article entitled Managing Risks in Small and Medium-Sized Retirement Plans, CIA member Peter Gorham discusses a number of governance items that should warrant their attention. Thanks very much for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you, Chris. Glad to be here. So your piece is aimed at small and medium-sized retirement plans. So I'm just curious, what unique issues do these plans face, specifically in comparison to larger plans? Well, first of all, I think I should define what we mean by that. I tend to think for governance purposes that the number of members is a good way to define it. And practically any plan with more than about 1,000 or 2,000 plan members probably falls into the large size where they're able to look after governance on a more proper or better governance because they have the resources. So practically from about 100 or 200 plan members up to about 1,000 or 2,000 plan members would be the group that we're aiming at. Smaller plans practically don't have the resources or the time to be able to do any of this stuff. Internally, for the small and medium plan, pension management is going to be assigned to somebody who's already fully booked, probably a VP of HR or the CFO. And they have no time or knowledge to be able to properly handle risk, particularly pension risk, and they don't have the resources. Most small and medium-sized plan sponsors do little, if anything, to manage these risks because they believe it's beyond their ability and time. So they're reactive rather than proactive. And it doesn't have to be that way. The secret here is to identify what you can manage with the skills and time available. Otherwise, you are exposing yourself to unknown risks with unknown probability of occurrence at an unknown cost. And that's not smart. So why should smaller plans be thinking more about governance? And and what are some of the consequences if they don't? Basically, it's the kind of risks that you could be facing. Obviously, there's legal risk. Somebody decides to sue you because something didn't get done or they feel that they've lost as a result of something you did or didn't do. Other risks would include the failure to get things done on time, whether it is paying somebody a pension, remitting contributions so that they can be invested in a member's account, filing reports. You're also more prone to poor investment performance because you're not tracking it or following it errors if they occur, when they occur. And that leads to a reduction in employee confidence, which if it's allowed to fester, can increase your turnover. And finally, there's also board liability. Smaller and mid-sized organizations, the board of directors is usually the ultimate responsibility for the pension plan. And in many situations, board members have no idea that they hold that ultimate responsibility. So the small and medium plan, in order to make sure that their board is properly protected the way the board ought to be concerned for, the senior staff member should be proactively submitting a report to the board to let them know, here's how the pension plan is doing. Here are things that you should know about. Are there any issues? And they should be doing that at least once a year. So I know that actuaries tend to focus on mortality and investment risk, but there's a lot of other risks that plan sponsors and members need to worry about. And you've mentioned a couple of them. What are some others that they really need to be mindful of? Well, the um, administration risk or errors. I mentioned errors before. I think it's important to recognize that errors are going to happen. No matter how good a system you put in place, no matter how much money and time you throw at it, 
errors will occur. It's just a matter of how many and when. So you should plan what to do when an error happens, or you should plan to be able to catch them when they happen. And one way to do this with internal staff is to require each staff member who is responsible for a function to send a report quarterly, semi-annually, whatever frequency makes sense, to outline what they've done in the past period. Did they meet their deadlines? Was everything done correctly and on time? And if not, explain why not. And then if you're the senior person, you set up a reminder so that if you don't get those reports, you are able to follow up, which means that you're going to catch those situations where there's been turnover or a change in responsibility within the organization and the new person doesn't know that they're supposed to be doing things. So this is part of catching those errors proactively. And of course, a lot of errors are going to happen with your third party administrator. And here you want to make sure that they report to you when an error occurs so that they're alerted to it and you are alerted to it and they realize that you take it seriously and find out from them how they address the error and what they're going to do about making sure it doesn't happen in the future. Another area to uh, think about and be concerned about are pension committee meetings, assuming that you have a pension committee. Having a set agenda that is planned in advance to cover all of the items that you should be concerned about, I think is key to having a successful pension committee. So if the committee meets four times a year, set up four separate agendas so that over the course of the year, you are identifying and dealing with all of the key issues. For instance, there would be a meeting where you review your statement of investment policies and goals and make any amendments or arrange to make any amendments to it. Another meeting where you review all of your plan terms and determine whether they are appropriate if there are any plan amendments needed. And another one where you review the compliance reports that you've received from third party suppliers and from internal people just to satisfy the committee that things are being done properly and on time. So that deals with having a set agenda that is a proactive agenda rather than a reactive agenda. Another area for pension committee meetings is thinking about what you actually spend your time on. In my experience, most pension committees spend an inordinate amount of time doing investment performance review. And if you think about pension committees meeting four times a year, maybe for three hours at a time, that's 12 hours in a year that the pension committee meets. Probably six to nine of those hours are taken up by having investment managers come in and tell you how well they did and why they didn't meet their goals, but that it wasn't their fault. It was something else that caused them to miss their goals. Most pension committee members don't have the expertise to really understand all this and to be able to ask the good detailed questions that will ferret out key information from investment managers. So why waste your time on that? Spend the time on things that actually matter. Delegate investment performance review to someone qualified within the organization or to your consultant who then provides you with a overview summary and makes recommendations whether the investment managers are living up to their uh, goals and doing a good job or if you should be thinking about changes whether it's changing the funds available to your uh, DC plan members or looking for new managers for a DB plan. Well, thank you for providing that summary and thank you very much for coming on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me, Chris. I appreciate it. One of the big questions faced by just about everyone in their lifetime is whether it makes more sense to rent or own their home. As with many other decisions, there is a certain amount of risk assessment involved. And to discuss his contribution to the ERM booklet, we are joined by CIA member Joe Noons. Thanks very much for being on the podcast today. Thanks for having me, Chris. So let's start at the very beginnings. What inspired you to write a paper on this topic? 
Well, I think over the last few years, uh, 2021, the real estate market in most of Canada was pretty hot and everyone was hearing the message, you better get in now, you better buy now. And then, you know, a second thought, 2022, prices started to reverse and there was, you know, maybe some buyer regret but then rents were going up. And so there's a lot of dynamic in the marketplace in terms of media reporting on what you should do. And I just thought maybe someone should step back and help create a bit of a roadmap for future buyers to say, here's a a way you may want to think about it uh, without any vested interest of trying to sell homes or sell mortgages or sell investments in lieu of homes. Can you give us a high level overview of what we can find in this paper? You know, I think the the central part of the paper shares a model that I've developed. It's not an exact science when you think about uh, the math of whether you should be owning or renting. And, And what you really find is that if you make bold assumptions about how much real estate will go up in price after you buy a property, it starts to lean towards an obvious answer that you should buy a home. And likewise, if you make the opposite assumption of assuming that you could invest the money you don't spend on a home in market securities and earn untold fortune on that side of the equation, then it starts to say, maybe you should just rent and invest the difference as we like to say. And so what I've tried to do with my model is try and neutralize a little bit of the exuberance that sometimes people have about how well one side of the equation or the other will do in terms of future investment return and just think more about a cost structure of what will it cost you to own a home? What will it cost you to rent a home? Okay. And I'll go ahead and ask the question, is there a right answer to the rent or own question? And what would that answer depend upon? I think like so many things in life, there's not necessarily a right answer. I think what the model tries to do is give you a sense of this is a relatively good time to buy or this is a relatively good time to maybe stay on the sidelines of ownership and continue to rent. But there's a number of factors that go into the decision. And you may find yourself in a circumstance where even though it's a good time to buy, For you personally, it's a good decision to continue to rent because you may be looking at moving cities to take a job elsewhere. And that would, you know, buying is never a great deal if you're trying to sell a home six months or a year after you've bought it because there are costs such as real estate commissions and land transfer tax, at least in Ontario. And so right answer Probably not. Does the model perhaps give an indication for someone to say purchasing housing right now is quite expensive and continuing to rent makes sense versus the exact opposite of renting getting more and more expensive and purchasing a home would be the right move? The other thing that the paper kind of concludes with is just really sort of more of an understanding of risk management and the idea that life comes with risks and the risk of buying a home comes with when you go to renew your mortgage, payments may be higher. It may be much less affordable than you thought it was at the earlier part. And this is really the importance of being able to lock in mortgage rates for longer periods of time. Unfortunately, what we're seeing right now in the mortgage marketplace is interest rates are quite a bit higher than they were 12, 18 months ago. And people that are required to renew mortgages at this time are hitting a bit of sticker shock. And so that's a risk people take on when they buy. But on the other hand, rents are also rising rapidly at this stage. And people that haven't locked in 
a predictable mortgage payment are now being faced by landlords asking for rent increases. Or if there's some sort of rent control in place, landlords are uh, in some cases kicking out tenants to sell the home or to move into the home themselves and renovate it to try and extract the new higher value of the home in today's market. And so ultimately, we have risks. And the question is, you know, really, what risk are you most comfortable with? What risk do you want to choose to manage versus the risk that you don't want? Sounds like an interesting application of risk management techniques. Uh, Thanks again for coming on the podcast today. Well, once again, thanks for having me, Chris, and have a great day. Just a reminder that if you have ideas for a future episode or would like to contribute to our Seeing Beyond Risk blog, we would love to hear from you. Contact information can be found in the show description. Until next time, I'm Chris Fiboli, and thank you for tuning in to Seeing Beyond Risk.